Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the GW Integrative Medicine Programs and Executive Director of the Office. Today, we're going to talk about Moringa with Dr. Jed Fahey, former director of the Coleman Chemo Protection Center at Johns Hopkins University, and Lisa Curtis, founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley Foods. A nutritional biochemist and leader in chemo protection, Dr. Fahey has broad training and extensive background in plant physiology, human nutrition, phytochemistry, and nutritional biochemistry. Many of these studies deal with cruciferous vegetables and Moringa oleifera. Lisa is a social entrepreneur whose company, Cooley Cooley Foods, includes a team of entrepreneurs, product developers, and change makers who are improving lives through sustainable nutrition and livelihood for women and farmers in the developing world using the Moringa plant. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Jed and Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think we should probably start with the basics. What is Moringa? Uh, Maybe, Lisa, you can give us a a friendly intro, and Jed, maybe you can give us some (laughs) botany after that. Yeah, I'll (laughs) give you the less scientific version. Um, So Moringa is a tree that grows all over the tropics, and it's actually the leaves of the tree that many people talk about, but that all parts of the tree are edible. Um, So it's an amazing plant, and I think that The way that I often tell people to think about it is it tastes kind of like matcha, has kind of a green, earthy flavor, um, but is even more powerful than kale, more nutrient-dense, and has some incredible phytonutrients similar to turmeric or other superfoods that you might have heard of. So uh, I, I guess you want the the more botanical yeah. take from me, but but I, I'd, I'd like you. So I'll give you one, but I'd like you to revert to, to Lisa and ask about some of her experiences with it uh, when she was in the Peace Corps and, and sort of how she got interested in it. Yeah, or, that or introduced good. to it. But um, from a botanical perspective, it's a it's a sort of isolated. Uh, Genus. There are there are thirteen species in the genus that compar- that comprises moringa, uh, meaning botanically it's a sort of small group, but it's very closely related um, phytochemically and and to a degree botanically to the cruciferous vegetables, the brassica vegetables, the coal crops that everybody's familiar with because of uh, because because you eat them if you eat vegetables probably <laughs> things like broccoli kale brussels sprouts kohlrabi cabbage stuff like that cauliflower um so it, it it i got interested in it from the perspective of its phytochemicals which are closely related to those crucifers that i've studied for a long time as you know lee mm-hmm. but um yeah so the other thing that I'd just add to what Lisa said before you turn back to her is that although m- most people, certainly the vast majority of people, eat moringa leaves, um, uh, especially in places like India, there are a lot of people who also eat the pods and the and the, the seeds and the immature pods, um, and it's a very, again, sort of from a botanical perspective, people in the uh, in the temperate zones like the U.S., are familiar with trees like the honey locust, the locust tree, and you you see all those those long beans or, or pods hanging down from it, and the little sort of penny-shaped round leaves. Moringa looks a lot like a sort of chaotic version of that uh, of a locust tree, um, and so it is. Uh, 
people do eat the pods and uh, and the seeds, and they also eat the the. Um, I mean, they've used all parts of the plant. Um, the plant, the trees are used for their for their wood. They're used to make fence posts and things like that. So, um, yeah, but but you should hear a little bit more from Lisa about sort of where the the metal the metal meets the pedal, or the pedal meets or the tires meet the road yeah. in the tropics, because she spent a lot of time with moringa there. Yeah, absolutely, Lisa. Please tell us about that because. I can't imagine how you would have run across this plant. We certainly don't talk about it much in the States. Yeah. So I had, I had never heard of it up until a little over 10 years ago. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger, West Africa, um, and was placed in a really rural village. You know, you can just imagine no electricity, no running water, no Whole Foods down the street. Um and I'm a vegetarian and, and just felt like I wasn't getting the right nutrients in my diet. I was, you know, kind of mostly eating rice every day um, and volunteering at the village's health center and asked some folks, you know, what can I eat that will make me feel better, give me more energy? And they literally pulled these leaves off a tree and mixed them into a popular local snack called Cooley Cooley and said, this Cooley Cooley Moringa is going to change your life. It's going to make you feel so much better. And I was like, I don't know about that, but you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll try everything. I'll try anything at this point, um, even tree leaves. So long story short, started eating it and just found it had a, a tremendous impact on my health. I think gave me the protein, the iron, the calcium, you know, kind of everything my body needed to feel good and feel more energized. Um, and as I looked around the village that I was in, I was like, you know, why aren't more people here eating it? They're literally feeding it to their goats. Um, and so they started telling me, you know, it's, it's kind of, it basically, Moringa's like kale 10 years ago in the U.S. It was this, you know, backyard weed, kind of bitter, like not something that people really wanted to eat. Um, and I kept asking, well, you know, what can we do to get more people to grow it and, and use it? Um, and they said, well, why don't you help us sell it? Because if we're selling it, then, you know, everybody will think that there's value in this plant and that'll help us earn an income and help us grow more of it. And it'll kind of create this good cycle. So, um, you know, I was 23 at the time, um, had no idea what I was signing up for, but like, sure. Yeah, I'll help you sell it in the U.S. No problem. Um, so got back to the U.S. and, and started Cooley Cooley Foods and um, it's been a journey, let me tell you, but mm. we now sell um, moringa powders and um, other superfood powders as well, all sustainably sourced directly from small farmers. Um, and we're in 11,000 stores, so everywhere from Whole Foods to Walmart. So we've, we've gotten moringa actually on Whole Foods' trend wow, Walmart, list that's impressive. two years. Yeah, yeah, no, Walmart, it does, it does really well there too. So I think... Uh, even though it's not familiar to a lot of Americans because it has such importance in like Ayurvedic medicine, where it's really well known, as Jed mentioned, you know, all over India, you can see uh, folks eating the the seed pods, they actually call Moringa the drumstick tree. In the Philippines, Moringa is the national vegetable. They call it malungai. Um, all over Central and South America, there's this big focus on Moringa as something that people use for weight management and help to like nat work with natural diabetes. Um, and then all over Africa, you hear it called like the, the tree of life or mother's milk because it's used for lactation. So 
Long story short, we find it it resonates in places you might not expect because so many people have these cultural ties to this amazing plant. So it sounds like it has a long tradition of being used. What types of conditions is it used for? Yeah, that's where I think, Jed, it can give you some pretty amazing science. I will say from a like cultural tradition perspective. Um, A lot of the things that we hear from our supplier partners is that they will use it from everything from like, oh, I have a cough. I'm going to start dousing myself with Moringa to, you know, we've even had folks tell us that they use it as part of their like HIV treatment or cancer treatments or, or for more serious diseases. So it is something that I think is just seen as this like all around superpower plant. So, so yeah, I, let me, uh, that, that's a good sort of segue to something I think is important to, to, to fill people in on. But let me take one step back and say that um, I think one of the benefits that um, that's that sort of attracted me to Moringa for its value in the tropics um, is that it the leaves once dried the leaves store beautifully and um, because the plant is because the, these trees are drought resistant um, it, it is uh, leaves are available uh, really w- when when everything else is dried up and very very few other things are available so especially if if the leaves are, are properly dried um, and and stored um, so in the tropics I think it's got great value it's it was in some places it's seen as a famine food um, although although in others it's it's just you know it's just eaten regularly um, that sort of loses its importance when you trans transfer your focus to the United States or to more temperate climes. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, Lisa's company is, is, uh, is selling primarily dried, uh, powdered dried leaves and they have that and it's available year round here. Um, but in the tropics, I think this, this sort of availability is, is really important when you are talking about its nutritional properties. So in terms of some of the science, I mean, I think you have to separate the way you look at the science on Moringa into two pieces. One is the fact that it's, uh, one is nutritional and one is medicinal. So Mm. from a nutritional perspective, it's a highly digestible protein source comparable to the FAO's, um, sort of standards, I mean, comparable to, to milk and, and eggs uh, in terms of protein digestibility and, and quality. Um, so uh, I, it's, it's, it's not something that I think most people, especially in the West, would make a, a, a major part of their diet, but, a, but, a, but use as a supplement, but they use as a supplement. And I think, Lisa, I think... Uh, Please tell us. I think that's true in um, in uh, West Africa and and other places in the tropic too, right? You wouldn't make a meal of it, but you would use it as a complement or a supplement. Yeah, I think we often find folks will add the leaves into their sauces and make. You know, in in Niger where I was living, there was they call it this leaf sauce. Um, and in India, I know it's used a lot in sambar and, and curries, both in the drumstick, and you can sometimes find it in lily form as well. So, 
Yeah, it's it's not uh, necessarily uh, the primary food, but I think ads are really powerful and nutritional and, you know, also phytonutrient boost to whatever you're making. Yeah. So so the second part of the answer then is the is the phytonutrient uh, um, and. Uh, we can talk about its role as a medicinal or its phytonutrients, its phytochemicals, its bioactives. You know, we can use whatever terminology we prefer, but basically that's where having a relative, relatively to, you know, to a bowl full of rice, let's say, a relatively small amount of the plant um, can have really huge outsized effects because it is effective. Um, in various systems, in various trials, in various experimental systems, and in clinical studies in some of these cases. It's effective as an anti-inflammatory, as an antioxidant, as a cytoprotectant, meaning protecting the cells, um, as an antibiotic, as an antiviral, as a cancer preventive, as an anti-diabetic, as an anti-hypertensive. Now, that sounds like a long list, but as Lisa said... Yeah, but as Lisa said, the the, the whole list. Um, I mean, I've done a few reviews on on the, sort of the medicinal qualities of moringa. the The whole list, if you go to the traditional literature, is something like three hundred or so claims. So uh, clearly, when modern science or a, any science takes a close look, not all those claims will hold up. But the ones that I mentioned are the are I, I mentioned because they're the subject of uh, already of a lot of research, uh, both in the lab in vitro, um, in animal studies, and again in some m- many cases in studies with people. Um, so, and I would I, I've sort of singled out over the the last uh, five or ten years the anti diabetic uh, properties because. Um, I mean, I've talked to West African doctors who have uh, just sung its praises and and had patients who were on medication but couldn't really afford it for diabetes and Mm. got off the meds um, when they started taking Moringa. Um, So there's mechanistic data, there's mechanistic work, there's model animal model data, and there are, I, I don't know what the current count is, I think... Uh, somewhere close to 10 clinical studies that have been done with various degrees of success and various degrees of rigor. And they're not all wonderful clinical studies, but um, that have examined its anti-diabetic properties. So when you look at the scale of diabetes worldwide, I mean, that's a, that's a major plus right there. Um, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. And Lisa also used the word, Superfood, which she and I tangled tangled about early on in our relationship, um, it's a word that I used to hate. The word superfood, you know, talking about moringa or kale or whatever you choose, um, I've grown to accept it. I even used it in a few scientific publications um, because it's a word that customers, consumers, the lay public. Um, digs i mean they were mm-hmm. they they use that word so it doesn't matter in a lot of cases what a scientist wants to call something <laughs> if if the people the scientists are trying to reach have a different opinion sooner or later you have to bend a little bit 
Lisa, we, we came, we made peace on that, right? <laughs> so. We did. We did. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, folks get confused when you try to say this right. is a medicinal plant and highly nutritional and does these, you know, 20 different things. And I think what resonates with folks the most is this idea of like, oh, this is a superfood more powerful than kale. Like that line alone mm-hmm. um, often is enough that people are like, oh, that looks interesting. And, you know, if they're, if they want sort of the research and, and all of that we have it and they're happy to provide it, but often they just want somebody to tell them like, okay, well, what is it? Is it good for you? Does it do good things for you? So we, we like superfood. Uh, it actually makes a lot of sense because it's simple. Uh, and a lot of times simple things are what people uh, will hear, right? Like you're getting them to be able to hear it. And then it's something that they actually can understand. So Lee, I was going to ask you, I mean, you're a scientist. Do you have a position on superfood? And I guess you do. So I, I do. Okay. I, I feel like I'm yeah. still leaning in the anti-camp, but yeah. for a different reason, perhaps, um, I feel like the issue I have with the term superfood is that it makes other foods seem less than, and I feel like we still want you eating all the other vegetables and fruit and whole grains and nuts and beans. Um, You can't have a diet on only moringa, which I feel like we've made pretty clear already, actually, right? This is not the only thing you're going to eat. And this and goji berries is also not enough in a diet. You need this diversity of diet. Yep. Couldn't, Couldn't agree more. For me, the way that I think about superfood is a product you are consuming for benefits beyond just the like sort of face value, taste and nutrition. You're consuming it for, you know, some of these like medicinal properties. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I think about it. I think everybody has a different definition and, you know, people put a lot of a lot of different plants in the superfood uh, category but I think moringa certainly does deserve to be there yeah I agree I it sounds you know when you list all the things that it's been used for historically and then you start looking into the literature there's clearly something special about this food there is we we would agree yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that when we hear about these superfoods that also gets me concerned is then you start seeing products cropping up everywhere and we're just like, you know, throwing things in randomly and whether it's any quality or there's enough in it is really a concern. So how do people find Moringa that will actually provide the health benefits that we're talking about? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, There is no standardization for superfoods. Like there's, you know, there's no regulatory agency saying, yes, this checks all the boxes for what Moringa should be. There's, you know, no real definition of like what Moringa powder should and should not have in it. And I think it can be tricky because we get this question all the time of like, hey, I can buy a $9 bag of Moringa on Amazon and how come yours is $19.99? And often what we we tell folks is that there, it, it, it takes money to make something of quality. And and we're really careful both in the soil where the Moringa is grown. We make sure there's no heavy metals, toxins in the soil because, you know, Moringa is a bioaccumulator. It'll 
take all that stuff from the soil and take it up into the leaves. Um, we're very careful in how it's processed, that it's processed, you know, in a really clean way that, you know, gets gets rid of any of the, the bad micro stuff, um, but keeps the really good nutrition. So we're not just heating it up and killing all that the actives in there. Um, and so we've been working you know, doing this for over a decade now, partnering directly with small farmers, helping them to grow and process moringa that meets the absolute highest quality standards. And I think folks can taste and and tell a difference when they have our moringa. But unfortunately, there's there's not always a good way to communicate that when people are just you know shopping online or, or rushing through a store. Um, so it's something we struggle with a lot. So the, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the the quality of of, prepar- of preparation or harvest and preparation. Um, Lee, I think your your viewers could or your listeners, sorry, could <laughs> could probably relate to you know if you if you envision um, a bunch of moringa leaves harvested off a plant wherever they may be grown, dried gently under a shade cloth um, where you don't have a whole bunch of bugs and animals and and so on and dust uh contaminating the product um versus you know harvested in a in an unclean area and dried in a in a kiln or an oven to just to get it done fast Mm -hmm. and you know you lose so many phytochemicals when you do things like that um so i mean one of the things obviously that that cooley cooley does is is pay close attention to the micro uh whatever micro microbes may be on their uh leaves and and they only accept clean product um but i mean there are all sorts of opportunities for shady operators to just (laughs) unload just crap onto the market and we i've seen that it has nothing to do with my relationship with cooley cooley i mean i've seen that on um in stores, I've seen it in high-end groceries, uh, high-end you know stores like Whole Foods, but I won't call them out. I won't single them out, but uh, our, you know a local store that, and you look at the moringa that they do have, if they have any, and some of it is looks sort of bleached and just really uh, anemic. The, the, it's lost a lot of its green. So right there is a clue that that product is not something I would want to eat. So anyway, th- they're. There are a lot of details to uh, sourcing and producing and, and uh, consistently high quality product. And I think knowing your growers and, and who you're buying it from is critical, which I know Cooley Cooley does. And that's one of the things that attracted to me to them as an advisor in the first place. Long that time makes ago. a lot of so. sense. I, and particularly with like, just nutrition and supplements generally. This is like a classic story, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And if we're taking something to improve our health, we certainly don't want to have things like heavy metals in it because then we're probably actually hurting our health in the long run. Absolutely. Well, I mean, don't get me started with the supplement business, but <laughs> I mean, there, there's that's like a, a game of whack-a-mole because it doesn't take it doesn't take much money to start up a company to put some kind of powder in a gel cap and put it in a bottle. That's pretty mm-hmm. minimal investment. And, you know, you put something lousy out and people get sick or get hurt or don't get any benefit, or you run afoul of the uh, FTC and the FDA on your labeling. 
well, like you go bye-bye and start up with another company name. Right. So, I mean, this is, this is a formula that the supplement companies have used, unfortunately, many times. And, you know, people, I'm afraid people really suffer from it. Um, I mean, they don't, they don't get the benefit they'd like to get, but they also, there may be people that really are, have suffered from that, um, from these indiscriminate um, fly-by-night companies. Yeah, agreed. And the other thing that I'm I'm hearing that I I know is going to resonate with our listeners is the the fair trade that is going on here and the the care for the individuals who are involved in this throughout the pipeline because there's a lot of exploitation, particularly when we talk about taking a plant from a less lesser developed nation, right? Be that coffee or chocolate or moringa. Yeah, no, and I mean that's that's a key part of it, obviously. Yeah. Starting this out of the Peace Corps, kind of being being who I am, but also who our, our team is made up of. Like that's that's why we're here. We're not here to just sell a product. Our goal is to really support small farmers. And, you know, we see ourselves as being equal partners. They're amazing at growing this plant, at harvesting it, at hitting all these quality specs. And our job is to help them access the U.S. market and sell it here and, and tell the story of what they're doing. Um, so we have about 3,000 folks that we're partnered with through all of the, the farmers we source it, the, you know, people, folks who are processing the Moringa. Um, and we're sourcing from very rural parts of the world, you know, places like Mahindi, Uganda, where it's a 10-hour bus ride from the capital or, um, you know, other spots like that where there's not a lot of other opportunity. And, and so it really does help our farmer partners to be able to sell a product in the U.S. and um, it helps them to be able to do things like send their kids to school or, you know, provide better nutrition. Um, and we also do small community projects with our suppliers like Moringa and their morning porridges at schools or, you know, agroforestry projects to grow other crops alongside Moringa. Um, so it's a kind of a whole host of community involvement that we're a part of. Absolutely. So now I'm wondering about if you're a healthcare provider, what, what do you need to know about Moringa? Jed, what, what is the number one thing that you think healthcare providers need to know about this and perhaps if they want to use it in their patient population? Oh, that's a, that's a loaded question. I mean, you're, <laughs> sort of, sort of, you're sort of asking me to go back to the, to the list of sort of scientific highlights that I, that I gave you. But I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, the nutritional... The nutritional benefit we we talked about a little bit, and I, I think there's some things we didn't mention, like uh, the the sort of non-caffeine energy boosting um, mm. bet benefit, which which is frankly not proven in clinical studies, but but is anecdotally all over the place. I mean, people people talk about that energy boost, um, so it's certainly something actually that Lisa and and, and I have been trying to get a clinical trial done on, but um, hasn't happened yet. Um, but I, I think for clinicians, pro probably, well, 
it's it's all over the place. I mean, so let's let's just take let's just take three areas that I think are very exciting for future discoveries and research with moringa, but but that a clinician could really engage in uh, or engage with um, without anything further. One is it's it's um, its properties as a galactagogue or a, a lactation um, enhancing agent. And Lisa, you can speak more, more to this than than I can, because um, I know you <laughs> yes. pi- you piped into that network. Well, I, I we have piped yeah. into the network, and I you know I also have an eight month old at home, so I feel it every day, yeah. and it is <laughs> remarkable. Let me tell you, from just days when I dump a bunch of moringa in my morning oatmeal and have a you know afternoon moringa latte, get a lot more milk, and and we hear this all the time from a network of of doulas and, and moms that, you know, use our product for that. So it is, it is pretty powerful. And, and there are, there, there are clinical uh, studies there. There's clinical work that's been done on those properties. In fact, there's, there's one going on now in, uh, it's, it's in, in Kenya or Uganda. I can't remember, but um, so these, these properties are not, this is not just anecdotes. This is not just people, uh, you know, this is actually, I should point out, this is measurable, whereas the energy mm. effect isn't really, isn't that measurable or is hard to measure, hard to quantify. Uh, the, the, the lactation enhancement effect has been measured, and some of the recent non-published clinical data that I've seen is an almost doubling in milk volume, uh, and, and this, this, again, was in Africa. Um, so Works yeah, in America I mean, too. <laughs> it, it, where's that in, in America? Oh, no, I'm just saying it works in America too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, okay. That, I mean, Lita, to address your question, that's certainly one area where, um, a, a, a practitioner could make some recommendations, you know, try it and see how it works. Test for, test it for yourself. Um, there's mm-hmm. no there's certainly no toxicity or overdose issue with Moringa whatsoever, I would say. Um, and I say no overdose issue because I go back to, I used to get asked this all the time before I really became very acquainted with Moringa when I was working with broccoli and people would say, well, especially, you know, it take, it might take a serving or two of broccoli to have an effect, you know, how, how can I make sure I'm not overdosing? And my response always was, look, you start eating a plateful of broccoli with every meal and <laughs> your body is just going to say, forget about it. And you're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with Moringa, but it, with dried leaf powder, it's a, um, the, the tolerance, the personal tolerance will obviously be less than a plateful. Um, so, but I mean, you try it, you try a, a teaspoonful or a tablespoonful or a couple of them. Um, in whatever vehicle, whether it be oatmeal or, or various other dishes, and Lisa and many others have all sorts of recipes they can they can share um, and see if it works for yourself. The, the second the second area I think is the anti diabetic indication, um, and it, you know with with so many people, at least people of means um, in the Western world using um, continuous blood sugar monitors. Uh, I mean, this, especially with people with prediabetes um, or people who've been diagnosed with diabetes and are not 
yet put on on any meds. I mean, this is so easy to do self uh, clinician guided self uh, uh, testing. I mean, you you eat and you observe. You monitor blood sugar if you're if you've got a continuous uh, blood sugar monitor, um, or if you're doing finger sticks. Um, you see what it does to your to your um, to your energy level to your to your blood sugar. Um, and the third the third area that I would point out is one that's far far more difficult to I think get the heads of clinicians around, but that's the antiviral effect. Um, and it's such it's it's a far more serious um, well it's not it's not more serious. But it's a it's an area that's more fraught with um, with problems because most people that have that are HIV infected, for example, or have other viral infections, um, are on some sort of an antiviral. Um, but we again, there are there are a number of quite remarkable stories about about. Um, it, it not necessarily a direct antiviral effect, but a reversal of HIV/AIDS wasting, for example, with moringa. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are um, that's actually really uh, interesting because it sounds to me like there the moringa might also be acting on a nutritional pathway as well. Yes, I think so. I think so, and it, it it needs a lot more attention. But there are direct antiviral effects of. Um, that one of the main phytochemical components of moringa, and this is an area. If I if I can, if you want me to blabber on about it for another minute, I, yeah, I'll yeah. But this is an area where uh, I personally sort of go to the parallels between the research that's been done in in on broccoli and sulforaphane that I've spent the whole certainly the last part of my career working on, and glucomoringin or moringin, which is the very comparably comparable-looking, comparable-acting isothiocyanate in, um, that's found in moringa. And so the, the parallels between the modes of action and the targets in those two compounds is not surprising to any scientist, but is um, striking. And in fact, for a number of indications, the moringa compound is actually more potent than the compound from broccoli. So there, there is some direct evidence that that um, there's a there's, there's a direct antiviral effect of uh, moringin from moringa, but um, there are not good clinical studies on that. Whereas there are some with with the broccoli compounds. So I don't think you'd get any clinician to do a um, to do a to, to put a patient, for example, on moringa as a sole therapy, mm-hmm. but as an adjunct, it may. I, I think it's going to get it start gaining some uh, some some traction, or I hope it does, because these are real effects, and they can they you know I think they're they're going to be major benefits and very um, low risk, extremely low risk, and. and you know, I keep going back to not rich Westerners and, comp, you know, by comparison to the rest of the world, I'm saying, um, where you probably, most of your audience here 
probably can afford or their insurance can probably afford certain medications for mm-hmm. conditions like diabetes, HIV. Um, maybe I, I'm not aware that there are any medications for um, lactation enhancement, but um, that's not my that's not my specialty. But in the rest of the world where Moringa is widely available, I mean, I think it's hugely important that some of these indications um, be taken very seriously because we're talking about a lot of places where people can't afford modern medicines and could benefit as they have been for centuries from traditional medicines, but it would, it would sure help to be able to cut through the list of 300 indications and bring it down to, you know, 30 or 40 um, and to point people to Moringa instead of, uh, you know, clover or uh, bent grass or something else. And I'm, I'm pulling those examples out of the sky, of course, but um, so I think I think there's a lot of potential in some of these indications, and I realize I've gone astray from what you asked originally. But um, <laughs> no, it's you, okay. You, you asked what should a cl- what what should a clinician or a nutritionist think about with moringa, or what should they tell their patients? Right? Yeah, because well, the clinicians could potentially be utilizing this, but. As always in medicine, what happens is often the patients come in with the more cutting-edge stuff and ask the clinician about it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And one of the things I'm thinking about, particularly when we're thinking about people with limited resources, is it something that they sh- we should be thinking about in terms of uh, helping people being able to grow this for themselves? Hmm. Lisa, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Absolutely. I think people should grow Moringa. I will say it doesn't grow super well in the tropics. Um, it really does prefer like a hot climate, temper- a hot dry climate. The temperate zone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, frost will kill it. So depending on where you are, it might work out great, might not. We know lots of folks in like Florida and Hawaii that grow Moringa, no problem. Um, I would say here in Northern California, I've killed many a Moringa plant. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, that is a great way to do it. And I think also a great way to do it is, you know, we do sell really small little packets of Moringa for $2 and you get a full 10 grams. So you can just get a packet and like try it, try it in your diet for a week and, you know, add just Mm -hmm. a little bit to whatever you're eating and and see if it works for you. Um, Without a lot of investment. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. A lot of investment. Um, We're very cognizant of that. And, you know, one of our, part of our mission is to really make superfoods like Moringa accessible and delicious, um, both in the communities we source from and in the communities we sell to. So I actually have three three points to add to to what you said, Lisa. Um, one is that I've I get asked all the time since I'm sort of known for sprouting or sprouts. I get asked all the time, "Well, can, can't we grow moringa sprouts?" And mm. the sh- the short answer to that is no, almost completely, absolutely no, because the seeds are huge actually compared to a lot of other seeds i mean they're like the size of uh i don't know a, a pea or or bigger really they're bigger actually um so they're 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 very large and they don't germinate quickly and mm. they're susceptible to mold 
mm. and they don't like a lot of water. So you can't sprout them. The, uh, the second thing is um, in, in our, in our in the predominantly temperate zones in, in the U S anyway, um, they don't store the fresh leaves don't store well. So you might ask, well, Lisa, why don't you just sell fresh leaves? Well, when you refrigerate moringa leaves, they actually get moldy faster than I could ever believe. I mean, we couldn't even get samples shipped from Mexico, fresh samples shipped from Mexico without having, uh, you know, in a, in a cold pack without having them get moldy. Um, so you can buy frozen leaves uh, or seed pods in some like West Indian supermarkets and other places, but it's logistically that's a real pain. So the so the dried leaves are are I think certainly better. And, and the third thing is just quickly is um, I, I tried to put together a project actually growing moringa in greenhouses, hot houses in um, in Serbia after the after the war there. Um, where they were looking for sources of green vegetables that for for political reasons we, that never came, got off the ground, but we've grown it in greenhouses in the U.S. Um, in many places. Um, so I mean, I think in a in a in a house, even a house in Maine where I am, you know, you could grow moringa in pots, but the production of leaves isn't all that rapid when you grow them out of the tropics. Mm-hmm. So if you're a if you're a pot grower, if you have a if you have grow lights and you're growing cannabis, probably they do really well in a mm. grow room for cannabis, but not that many. You know, not all of us, including myself, not all of us do that. Um, but you know that that's actually a place where it'd be a good intercrop, right, Lisa, or a good. <laughs> Grown not side by not side an industry cannabis. I play in, but I'm sure <laughs> right, it would right. be. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, Although I will I, say, but... just side note, when we were first starting out, we made moringa bars by hand in a commercial kitchen and sold them at a farmer's market in Oakland. And literally half the people came up to us and like sort of whispered, hey, so there's there's meat in this, right? <laughs> I mean, like, no, there's different different magical plant guys, different magical plants. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, that's I love good. It. So I have fond memories of moringa and eating it in an applesauce in Jed's lab when I was in grad school. Um, I'm not sure that's the best way to eat it, though. So for my last question, I want each of you to let us know what is your favorite way to eat moringa? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I only get one. Okay. I'll try to keep this short. But um, <laughs> You can have more than one. I can have more than one. So, see, our customers at Cooley Cooley mostly use it in smoothies. <clears throat> I'm going to mm. be the first to admit I am not a smoothie person. I just like warm things in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even when it's hot out, I like something warm. And so I mix moringa into my oatmeal with flax seeds and chia seeds um, and some cacao nibs and a mm-hmm. little bit of peanut butter or almond butter and cinnamon. Um, I find oh, yeah. the cinnamon and like having a nut butter really complements the kind of earthier flavor of moringa. And it just, that is my fuel for the day. It does so many great things for me. Um, and then the other thing 
that I do a lot with Moringa. And I also really like doing this. Cooley Cooley has some superfood blends that I do it with is, is making a, a caffeine free afternoon latte. Um, I'm pretty caffeine sensitive. And so I find that at like, you know, three o'clock when I'm just kind of slogging through my email, needing a little something that doesn't have caffeine in it. Moringa doesn't have caffeine, um, but it does have a lot of these benefits that Jed alluded to that makes your body feel more energized. Um, so I will do make a little Moringa latte, you know, hot or cold um, in the late afternoons. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. So we have very, we have mutually exclusive lists, Lisa. So <laughs> I, I guess I, I've got say five, five, maybe six uh, go tos. One is on pizza. Um, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I just obviously sprinkling the powder, but um, so it goes with many different pizza. Um, cold or hot brewed tea. I've actually published a scientific paper on cold brewing. Um, sort of making a sun tea with moringa versus mm. hot brewing, and um, I won't go into details, but we can link your listeners to that paper if you want. Um, I love Coolie Coolie's chocolate bars. I mean, the chocolate flavored energy bars, and that's cheating because I don't make them; they do. <laughs> um, and then mixing it with peanut butter or almond butter and sort of balls that I put put in the um, and really with whatever else is in the refrigerator mix them in a in balls and and um freeze them on a tray and put them in the freezer um for homemade energy bars and then the last is mixing them with um ticino ashwagandha mm. so you, you you may not be familiar with ticino i don't think all that many people are but it's a fantastic probiotic um prebiotic i should prebiotic. say um yeah with chicory and and um uh dandelion root primarily and in particular the one with ashwagandha lends itself to mixing with um with with uh um with moringa um but that's a product that you i have no affiliation with and you i buy it on amazon actually um it's like <laughs> it's like a coffee or tea substitute not caffeine also free. good for the people who aren't caffeine or who are caffeine sensitive totally. it, exactly yeah yeah well, that is a great place, I think, for us to stop. Everyone can run out now and start putting those recipes together. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a really lovely conversation. I hope very educational for our listeners. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Lee. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. Thanks for listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.